Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Uche Blackstock. She is a physician in emergency medicine and the CEO of Advancing Health Equity. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hi, Max. Thank you very much for having me. I've been waiting a really long time to come on the podcast to speak with you, so I feel very honored and humbled. So I'm Dr. Uche Blackstock. I uh, have had very interesting last few months. Uh, I left academic medicine. I was a associate professor of emergency medicine at NYU School of Medicine. And I also was a faculty director for recruitment, retention, and inclusion uh, at NYU School of Medicine's Office of Diversity Affairs. I left, uh, I left, you know, for reasons that we'll get into a little bit more, but mostly to focus on my organization, Advancing Health Equity, which I founded about a year ago. The whole goal of my organization was to um, amplify and bring attention to issues uh, of racial health disparities, which I've cared, always cared very deeply about. And so I, since I started the organization, I sort of changed my offerings, but initially it started as talks and trainings around, uh, around bias and racism in medicine to now talking about how do you develop uh, racial equity culture within organizations. Also, uh, I'm working on uh, in terms of consulting services, currently working with the American Medical Association on developing a casebook for a structural competency, which is a concept that I'm hoping um, clinicians can uh, grasp more than, than they have. And really, it's the idea of understanding how upstream factors like social and economic policies and how structural racism um, can influence the social determinants of health, which, which eventually more downstream influences health outcomes and the health disparities that we've been seeing over the decades, but even more recently in the COVID-19 pandemic. Gotcha. Yeah, you've been quite busy um, since, you, uh, since you started working for yourself. Uh, so I remember reading your piece in Stat News, um, where you sort of discussed the experiences of um, black physicians, especially in academia, uh, and sort of like what motivated you um, to leave the institution. Uh, so I'm sort of curious, what has, what's the difference been like, right? Being sort of like on your own, you're still practicing medicine, but you're also engaged in, um, you know, sort of like robust advocacy and activism type efforts, um, and like what it was like being within <laughs> academia and also being engaged in some of those activities? So I'm gonna be very transparent. Um, so I would say, I wanna talk just a little bit about what it was like being in a leadership diversity role within mm -hmm. an academic uh, institution. And so, you know, I think that I was kind of naive when I took my role about three years ago. I think that I actually thought that I would be able to do uh, diversity and inclusion work uh, authentically. Uh, and because th that work meant so much to me, um, but it be soon became apparent that I would not be able to do that. And so I was working in, in an environment that was uh, what I would say very toxic and oppressive, especially of, of, of black faculty and of black students. And I became privy to how, you know, institutions function and how um, embedded both racism and sexism are in these institutions. And so, mm -hmm. and one thing that struck me was thinking about how can we expect academic medical centers to provide equitable care to, to their patients, including black patients, when the organizations themselves are not equitable. Mm. 
And so that, and that's what really um, struck me. And, you know, I, I think the longer that I stayed in that, that role, the more I felt suffocated, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, there's no way that I could, I can stay in this situation. And I, and, and I started talking to people, I started talking to people who were entrepreneurs, to people who had left academics, not just academic medicine, but in other disciplines. And I slowly realized that there would be an opportunity for me outside of academic medicine, because to be honest, up until that point, I literally had thought I would always stay at an academic medical institution. I had just gotten promoted to associate professor. But I will say, um, even that process of being promoted was a very painful one, because when I went up for promotion, essentially everyone you know, told me, Uche, you're gonna, this, is a, this is a slam dunk. Um, my promotions committee didn't flag any issues. And actually, I, I was denied promotion the first time I went up. And it was felt like a slap in the face because mm. I had been uh, offered a lot of opportunities in the institution based on the work that I had done. So I had basically been told this work that you did was, was very important. Mm-hmm. And I had created essentially uh, an ultrasound, point of care ultrasound curriculum for the medical school, which uh, we were, NYU was one of very few medical schools that had such a curriculum. Anyway, all that to say, that whole process of um, having my promotion request denied and and then the aftermath of that, I mean, I will say that many people came to um, my aid and, um, and, and, and supported me, but it really got me thinking about how these institutions, you work very hard for them. You uh, essentially commit significant time and effort and it often can go unrecognized. And when you look in the literature, this often happens to black faculty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, it, it, even though at the moment it felt, I was felt very alone, I realized when I, when I stepped back that it was, it, it was an experience that um, many have. Mm-hmm. And, and so I started just thinking about how would it look like to carve out another path? And I will say that taking that leap was quite scary. You know, even my father, who is you know, a Jamaican immigrant, who he only knows of academic medicine because my sister was, my twin sister Oni was also um, in academics. Our mother, who's also a physician, was as well, said to me, what are you going to do? I'm worried about you. And he would have thought I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to leave my kids and go, um, you know, um, fly around the world or something. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I also remind that, you know, you and, you and mommy raised Oni and me with, you know, with, with strong values and, and, and strong priorities. And I really feel like at this point in my career, I want to do work that will serve our community. And so, you know, and so I made that decision to leave. And since I left, it's really been an incredibly eye-opening experience. I have received many more opportunities than I have ever, um, I ever expected. And I've, my platform has also risen to the point where I feel like I can say things in a more unabashed, honest way than I could have ever said them within academics. And you know, to be honest, in academics, I have people within my institution looking at my Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. and reporting back right and, and and that was not for doing anything inappropriate that was just for speaking the truth 
and, and so and so these are the environments that you know that black trainees and faculty have to work in where we're essentially under the microscope and we're in these institutions that are so have cultures that are so entrenched in, in racism and and they say that they want to change and honestly i'm not and i wrote this stat piece because i'm not convinced i'm not convinced that 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 many many of these institutions wanted to change at all Mm -hmm. And I think that any change you'll see happens will happen if they get negative press, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And, and they're true. being forced to, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm going to come back to this point because we're in this moment where everyone is kind of committing to new change and like turning a leaf, you know, turning over a new leaf. Uh, but I, I remember a lot of times, like at the med, you know, at the med school, where like. Or maybe or like somebody in leadership would tell us, "I'll do whatever you guys want, but just don't have me in the New York Times. Don't right. don't have me on the cover of the New York Times." Um, so since you left, you've been um, pretty vocal and present, especially on media. And 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 your you know your departure from academics sort of like coincided with this time, very crazy time that we're in right now, where you know the COVID nineteen pandemic is basically wreaking havoc in our communities, um, especially our um, Black and Latinx and low-income immigrant communities, and you're in New York City um, working at the front line. So I'm curious, you know, as someone who has been amplifying this message, um, I guess, how would you say you're, the position you're in, you know, having both been in academics but not also working on your own, has allowed you to be able to amplify this message? Right, and, and so, and it's not just about Twitter, like, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we were talking <laughs> before mm -hmm. the recording about, you know, Twitter being the great equalizer, mm -hmm. but, I, but, you know, and, and that, remains, that remains to be seen, but I do think that being able to amplify this message on Twitter has served to connect me with organizations and people mm -hmm. who um, are either doing similar work or who can help amplify my message even more. But I would say probably, Although frustrating, the biggest flex that I've had since leaving academic medicine was being able to have the opportunity to testify in front of the U.S. House of Representatives Select Subcommittee on the coronavirus mm -hmm. and discuss racial disparities. Because even though the whole experience was quite surreal, um, to be able to to put forth put forth the words that um, are so important to, to the disparities that we're seeing, but also I'm now working on recommendations short and long-term to Representative Clyburn, the chair of the committee, so that the committee can actually, that will actually hopefully influence legislation that the committee will develop, mm -hmm. right? And so I never thought that advancing health equity would take me to that place, mm -hmm. right? But, that, but that's, so that I have to keep dreaming. So I, I'm like, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And what's next is that we actually do see, uh, you, you know, changes on a, a community level, neighborhood level. Uh, if we see uh, some interventions being put in place in the next one to two months with, within Black communities to mitigate the spread of coronavirus. I mean, that's what I would love to see in the short term. And obviously in the long term, we need, uh, you know, a long-term commitment and investment in our communities. And that's why, and, I, and one thing I've been trying to talk about more recently is reparations. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this, this is time for reparations. We are, we, you know, it's come up many times. Um, I feel like we're at an inflection point. You know, I feel like the, the pandemic exposed the racial inequities that have always been there. And those of right. us, you know, who, who care about them have, have known that they were there. 
Right. And then we had, it's, that situation was compounded by the police violence, right, which is also symptomatic of, uh, of systemic racism. And so, and we're at this point now where, as you mentioned, we even have like companies and we have NASCAR saying they're not going to fly the Confederate flag. And so I think we have the, like the doors opening a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I would love for the conversation to come to come back to reparations. I would love for it to include a piece about truth and reconciliation because I think one of what one, of, what, what, one thing that we've seen is that the United States has never fully, has never fully dealt with uh, the, the 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 horrific nature of slavery. Has never mm-hmm. admitted any wrongdoing for it, and, and and the communities and the people affected have never received. Um, yeah, any reparations like in Germany and like in other in other countries, and so mm-hmm. uh, and so this is this is time for that. And I don't think that is revolutionary, revolutionary or radical. I think it's um, it's it's just. No, absolutely. I mean, even within the U.S., right? Reparations did happen for some specific right, communities, right, like, like uh, Japanese. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it, I people only see reparation for U.S. descendants of the enslaved as radical, perhaps because they're black and anti-blackness. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, and I think even this conversation about like cash reparations. Like, mm-hmm. I think honestly, being cash reparations should be part of that conversation. Yeah. I, and, and I think that for people, for um, you know, for for white people, I think it's very uncomfortable. Um, specifically because uh, it's it's about the federal government giving basically cash money to to black people. Right. Right. Uh, but it's owed. Uh, <laughs> That's um, yeah. Right, right, right. I, 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 um, I, I thought a little bit about some of the responses, like, oh, do you want, you know, people are like, do you just want the government to give people cash? Like, how are they going to manage it? You know, there's this kind of like right. uh, this yes. element of anti-blackness that yes. I guess dubs black people as like irresponsible or mm-hmm. unable to take care right. Right. or care greatly for the money. Right. But it's, it's so interesting because yeah. it's like literally people don't people need to understand what we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing right now with George Floyd being murdered, Breonna Taylor being murdered with one in um, more than one in one thousand six hundred and fifty black Americans dying from coronavirus. This is all because this of, of lack of resources, lack of Absolutely. wealth in our communities mm-hmm. uh, that have been driven by social and economic policies. And right. so um and I think even if people understood that, I don't know if they would still support reparations. Probably not because of, of who would be receiving them. Mm-hmm. So, and as you said, anti-Black racism is, um, is such a strong, a strong sentiment. Yeah. So something that's interesting about, you know, working, I guess, like, so for instance, like testifying in front of Congress uh, and, you know, working on recommendations for, uh, you know, for instance, you're working for Representative Jim Clyburn. It's, I guess I wonder, like, how much faith do you have in your recommendations, like, actually being taken seriously? How much faith right. do you have in, like, the committee in front of whom you you, um, uh, you testified, right? Like, did it look like they were listening to you? Right. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great question. And so I will say that it looked like some people were not listening mm-hmm. and that, you know, some representatives definitely had already had their own agenda. Mm-hmm. But what I also learned about the process is that the staffers who are behind the scenes have a tremendous amount of influence mm-hmm. on the representatives. And the staffers are really bright. Um, I think that they are um, social justice like motivated. 
um, especially the ones that I spoke to. And mm-hmm. so my, my, my hope is that um, they will have some sway as well and that we could actually see at least some of the recommendations, um, you know, influencing legislation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now I want to go back to this thing about, you know, um, academic institutions, especially academic medicine, um, you know, expressing new commitment to, uh, you know, in, in favor of, you know, addressing racism in the institution and addressing racism in terms of the, you know, patient care right. that they provide. And so like for me as a medical student, uh, I have felt like this rings hollow. Um, uh, like, you know, I started med school a month after Philando Castillo was killed. Like there, mm-hmm. there have been many, many of these, like uh, since I started medical school. And, and I don't know, like I've wondered, is it because George Floyd was killed on camera over the span of like eight minutes and 40 something right. seconds? Like is, is, is that sort of level of gravity what is not motivating this like new- out- No, I, I, I mean, I think, I, I think that is part of it. I don't, mm-hmm. think, that's, I don't think that's the full reason. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I say this is because I, I think it's the fact that it happened during a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it happened during a global pandemic that's disproportionately killing Black people. Mm-hmm. And also it's helping during a pandemic where even white Americans are seeing that um, the federal response has been uh, grossly ineffective, inadequate and ineffective. And that even they are seeing that this, there's something <laughs> very, very wrong with what's going on in this country. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I, 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 and I think that combination, right, is, mm-hmm. is why we're seeing institutions and organizations coming out with this recommitment to racial justice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and definitely for some, it's symbolic. Um, my hope is for some that it's not. But I know mm-hmm. that now is a time for, um, you know, Black students, trainees to make demands Mm-hmm. The demands that they've always been making, right? right. The demands I think are now not is new. an opening. Like, check your email. Right. <laughs> right. The demands are not new. Like I know some of our students are talking about, you know, the medical school getting rid of AOA, right? Mm-hmm. Which we know has been embedded with bias and racism from many different perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I so, so I think that like there's a lot of hard work that needs to be done by these academic medical institutions, mm-hmm. and, and and it's going to be on many different fronts, right? It's going to be what's in the curriculum. It's going to be who's teaching, right? It's going to be how are you retaining, uh, how are you retaining not just retaining but retaining and promoting faculty. How are you supporting your black students, right? Mm-hmm. Like what 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 do you need to have in place to make sure that their experience in these in these um, institutions are, are positive ones where they're not just surviving but thriving. Mm-hmm. And, and so in all of that, these institutions need to center Black people. They're mm-hmm. Black trainees, they're um, Black faculty. We literally have the answers. Right. But I remember, and I shared this, I remember literally being called into a focus group for Black faculty with three or four of my other colleagues. We gave recommendations for how to make the institution more hospitable. And literally, um, one of the deans looked at the recommendations and said, no, this is not true. So, so when you have, right, right, it's, uh, someone, called it, someone called it structural gaslighting, mm. <laughs> right? Because how can, you, how can you tell people who are 
working within an, within an institution and, and saying, this is what my experience is, that they're wrong. And, and, and that's why, you know, that's why there may not be change, right? Because if we have people in, in leadership, right, that all look a certain way with a certain perspective, they're not going to believe the, the lived experiences of black trainees and faculty, then, then what's going to change? And so, you know, I think that the, it has to be, the strategy has to be intentional and explicit. You have to use a racial equity lens, right, on every decision that you make around practice or policy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it has to be a long-term commitment. This is not going to change overnight. Mm-hmm. So having worked in diversity and inclusion leadership at a medical school, um, what are some things that you've tried to do then that you think would be like effective um, if the medical schools were actually to support it, both from like a medical student and faculty uh, yeah. retention perspective? I mean, I, I think that we need to look at, you know, because I was, because I am, I was a black faculty member. I mean, I, that those are the experiences I think about obviously more, but there needs to be um, like a commitment to retention and promotion. And so if that looks like having a mentoring committee for, for each black faculty member, when, for starting from when they come in and not just people who are on tenure track, even for mm-hmm. non-tenure track people, right? Mm-hmm. And um, to have people that are meeting with them every three to six months to making sure that w- what is it that you need? You need this? Okay, we got, we, we got you. Okay, oh, we, get, we have that resource for you, right? Because we know that we are going to have different needs than other faculty, right? And so, mm-hmm. and, and if you're going to have an equitable environment, right? You're gonna, you need to have an environment where you need to treat each, each member equitably. And so we have different needs as black faculty than, than, than white faculty members, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's um, making sure that we can allocate, there's a commitment to allocating resources for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I love the idea of like these little mentoring, mentoring subcommittees that can help not just with retention, but with promotion as well. Mm-hmm. And I think also there needs to be more clarity on promotion policies and not just promotion policies, but looking at what the policies are and making sure that they're, they're race equitable policies, just like we mm-hmm. do with gender. But we need to make sure uh, similarly around race, because I know that, you know, there's this idea that certain, certain research and certain work is not considered as valuable. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, we even see that in terms of health disparities, research, getting funding from the NIH. Right. And so that kind of, um, so that, that criteria is also embedded in like promotion, promotion criteria right so what are we what are we deeming as valuable work or not valuable work Mm -hmm. so is it the case or has it been the case i don't know right um so i know at least at the nih like grant funding level um you know faculty who are interested in uh health disparities work community health uh women's health issues like are less likely to get their funding and so i wonder For instance, when someone comes up for review on a tenure committee, uh, is it the case that health disparities work is like sort of like explicitly less valued for promotion? And then are like white faculty who do that work sort of like more likely to get uh, the praise, I guess, than black faculty the way it works at NIH? Yeah, I I think the way I I saw was that that work is just valued less. And that it's that the people that are more likely to do disparities research are are, are black people or other people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the other thing I was going to say is that like 
this whole notion of like diversity, equity, and inclusion to me is like a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that we need to have conversations about more honestly about um, about racism. Mm-hmm. Like, we need we need just to call it call it out. I think that when we're, we're saying diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's it really sanitizes it and makes it more palatable for. Um, the white leadership of these institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see where it's gotten us up until this point. And so I, I, I hope even in this moment that the conversations can be more, more candid mm-hmm. right? and, 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 and more honest. Because when we're talking about like diversity and inclusion, it's like, no, I mean, the reason why we have those, those that terminology, right, is because we, don't want to um, seem too radical, mm-hmm. um, but, the, but, the, but the fact is, is that not confronting racism head, head on is just going to keep us in the current situation that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes me think of this notion that um, Ibrahim Kemdi refers to as feelings advocacy uh, versus like actual anti-racism, where like you know the kind of advocacy that a lot of people may engage in. Uh, especially in this moment, it's like the advocacy that like makes them feel good or that it's like a bomb to their soul when there's like, when they feel bad about what's happening in the world, right? Right. They're like posting anti-racism reading lists uh, and like, I don't know, hosting a book club, but like what we need beyond feelings advocacy is like actionable change. Absolutely. Um, And so at an institutional level, right? Uh, I feel like there's a disconnect between the experiences of racism. Like people think of it as like the the small indignities that yes, we do face, like people disrespect us because we're black and all this stuff, but not as much about just like the redistribution of power and resources. I mean, yeah, and so and, and that's also why I think that like I don't have you ever seen like this racism iceberg? Like there's this iceberg. Yes, like, that's what, like the, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like like what you can see and what you can't see. And I think mm-hmm. like most people think about like yeah, you were saying like these um, like interpersonal exchanges, like um, but it's re- but it's really more about how organizations and institutions function to advantage some and disadvantage others, right? And it's mm-hmm. about you know, um, uh, you know where where the resources and the power lies. And so the mm-hmm. so that's why I think that it, it's critical that we have these really honest conversations within the within institutions, like even looking at seeing who is who are the deans. Mm-hmm. Right? Who are the deans in, in in medical school? Who are on the boards, right, of, of these medical schools? Um, and I'm not just saying that putting a black person as dean of medical school is going to make a difference. I'm not. I'm not saying that. We're talking about organizational culture, like culture change, right? And mm-hmm. this is about. And, and, and I know that like I feel like anti-racism is getting like. <laughs> so it's getting, it's just, yeah, it really, it really is. But this, is, but it's really about. Um, institutions being taking the time and the effort and putting the full work into reflecting on how they can be like psychologically and emotionally violent to black trainees and and faculty mm-hmm. you know it's like when i was leaving nyu apparently some someone asked oh why why is she leaving she should be so happy to be here but but no one yeah exactly so that's how out of touch they were right mm. And, and when I wrote my piece, I literally got so many DMs and emails from Black faculty and students saying, I, 
this resonates with me mm. tremendously, right? And that that is actually what made like reaffirmed my feelings about writing the piece, mm-hmm. right? To to help give other people like me a voice that mm-hmm. we typically don't have because we're worried about losing our job or we're worried about uh, one of the consequences as a student if I speak up. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. These these institutions have made us scared. They, right. they, we can't even, and there's, a, there's this fear, right? This fear of if I speak up, even though what I'm saying is the truth, that I'm going to get in trouble or there's going to be, I'm going to be ret- retaliated against or labeled as a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were talking earlier about the whole respectability politics thing, but I think that in order to survive, right, within these institutions, many of us, fall into that respectability politics type behavior because we we want to be in these institutions we you know the work that we do is important and sometimes we lose some of ourselves mm-hmm. in the process absolutely and so you made a point earlier right that you know for these institutions to be able to provide equitable care they have to be able in some way to actually like foster a culture within themselves that is equitable and that sort of like offers uh, opportunity to trainees and faculty in an, in an equitable way. Uh, and I absolutely agree. I sort of see this as like a multi-level uh, right. like process or thing. Uh, and so, you know, beyond the changes within the institution in terms of how care is provided, um, as someone, you know, you provided care, you know, through your institution, and now you're providing care um, outside of that institution. What are some ways that you think institutions, especially, you know, large academic medical centers can uh, be better community anchors uh, that that really, truly do a better job at helping the community and just, you know, just providing day-to-day care? Yeah. I mean, I I honestly think, I'm shocked that, and not every hospital or academic institution has like an office of community engagement to me like that should be mm-hmm. like the a no like, brainer <laughs> yeah i'm like or, or, or and it should be like the most well-funded office in the, in the institution right mm-hmm. because this is all about creating of, of engaging with communities how can you care mm-hmm. for community members if you don't engage with communities unless um unless you don't know what their needs are, what their priorities, what their concerns are. And so I, and and that's what I think, and we know that like care is shifting from like um, inpatient setting to outpatient setting, right? And so I see a role for um, hospitals and community-based organizations, especially around the social determinants of health. I see a role um, also for community health workers, um, I see a role for funding community health centers, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's all about really centering the, the centering black communities in this, um, which I don't know. It's, it feels like it's like asking a lot, but <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I think you know, and for so long that relationship has been uh, really a tenuous um, and one and even exploitative, mm-hmm. right? Um, as well, especially with regards to certain academic institutions and the neighborhoods that surround them. Um, right. But um, I think it can be done. I think it can be done. I think it mm-hmm. can be done um, in a productive way that, um, again, centers the communities that need, that um, are being served. I remember reading your recommendations in the Washington Post about exactly this. Um, so something that's been really interesting in this moment is kind of thinking about, um, you know, which hospitals get relief from the government. Mm. Um, so we talked about. Well, I mean, it's been in the news how the fancier Manhattan hospital 
had got like a lot more funds from the federal government than the poorer or I guess like lower um, resource in like Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx. Um, And it sort of brings things back to this concept of like nonprofit hospitals, right? Where like seven out of the 10 most profitable profitable hospitals are actually nonprofit. um, And part of it is like, you know, they're tied with academic institutions. And so I guess my question, I'm curious what your thoughts are, right? About this nonprofit status that, um, hospitals uh, often have. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, that's that so tr- can be leveraged. Yeah, no. I mean, that's so troubling. And I and when I was when I was reading about the bailouts that some of the hospitals had received, and how that just um, perpetuates that segregated care. Mm-hmm. Um, and how even when you looked at if you we haven't we don't have all the data yet, but looking at the health the outcomes of patients in those different hospitals, we probably would see. Um, also, not just racial disparities, but disparities in um, in, de- in deaths as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and, and um, I think every, that's something that we definitely have to examine and um, and think about because I, I'm thinking about one of the hospitals that I know really well that received a, a tremendous amount of funding, and they also said that the reason why the patients had better outcomes was because they. Um, they have a team-based approach to care, <laughs> totally ignoring the fact that this is also because they have significantly more resources. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, we've got a lot of work to do at like sort of like every level of right. this like healthcare engine. Yes, absolutely. Well, Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for coming on to the pod. Um, I really appreciate hearing from your perspective and it's been a long time coming. Um, so this has been a delight. Thank you for your patience. It was a lot of fun and I can't wait to come back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script. <laughs>